This is John Moore on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. In the coming hour, a conversation with a guy who made me bleach my hair will explain. Comedian Carolyn Taylor on how she became obsessed with figure skating and Whitney Houston. And a new book asks the question, what if what you do for a living doesn't actually define you? The police at one time was the biggest rock band in the world. They turned out immortal hits like Don't Stand So Close to Me, Roxanne, and Every Breath You Take. Andy Summers was the guitarist. He's now gone solo naturally, and he's got a side hustle in photography. He joined me for this conversation. Andy Summers joins us. It's uh, very nice to meet you, sir. Good to be here with you. I was very curious because... I've been in my business for a while, and now I have people who come up through the pipe and tell me, oh, I listened to you when I was young. So if I tell you that you and the police are kind of the soundtrack of my youth, how do you respond to that? Oh, really, sorry. I apologize. (laughs) I hope we haven't really really ruined your life. (laughs) No, I mean, come on. I I dyed my, I, I bleached my hair for you guys. Well, okay, I'm very, very pleased that we um, had an influence on you. It was a good one, and that hasn't ruined your life, as I said. You know, most people seem to have enjoyed that. If they were youthful at that particular time, as we all were, it was a rather golden time when you, you know, in today's world, you know, and all the stuff that we're surrounded with, and you think back to the early 80s, boy, that was a good time. I hope we realized it at the time. Yeah, you know, how musicians come together. I mean, did you guys just, because each of you are superlatively talented in your own instrumentation and what it is you bring to the party. So I wonder, was there a point where you said, this is going to work, this is it? I wasn't sure at the beginning because we were brought together by another guy. It was a, kind of an odd story. There was a guy who was the bass player in a group called Gong and they had broken up and they were going to do a one-year-later you know, show in Paris where each guy would bring his own new band and then they would play as Gong. That was the setup. It was sort of strange. Um, but Gong were very well-known in England at the time, so we went along with this guy. He got Sting and Stewart, who were already the police. You know, Stewart was in a band called Curved Air, but was very avid to be in the punk scene. That was what was happening. And um, so they had police with this French guitarist, but he wasn't the right guy for this particular thing. I was a different sort of musician. I'm putting that mildly. I came in to play with him, and there was obviously a connection there. And, you know, it sort of went on. We ended up doing the show in Paris. And that was sort of it, except, you know, there was a real connection, particularly between me and Sting, musically, we'd like, or immediately, like musical partners. So, you know, then there was some discussion, you know, and it was a sort of awkward time because I had no interest in no interest in playing with another guitarist in the band. I wanted to be it, the whole thing. You know, anyway, that goes through all the gnarly details. That's what it became. The rest, as I said, is history. But uh, we went through that sort of strange start, and then, uh, you know, off we went. In its time, and actually even in our time, a trio is extraordinarily rare. You know, I've read an awful lot about how you have, the word compensated is probably an understatement, but how you, uh, you know, infused enough into the guitar in order to make a trio actually work. Well, yeah, you have to be a very good player, which I was, a superlative player. I, you know, I've been playing for a while. 
I was at University of America, I did music for four years. I mean, I was a sort of pretty so and I could play anything. But I liked the challenge of being in a trio because there's that space and, you know, you've got to really know what you're doing to, to fill it in well and not be boring and cliched. And, you know, it was the perfect setup. Stuart had his style on the drums. Sting definitely had the ears to hear the more unusual kind of things that I would do behind the vocals. And so it worked out and it became that unique sound that is actually the police style. You, more than an awful lot of guitarists in music, have touched on so many different genres. I mean, you started with jazz, you did R&B, you actually studied professionally or in university classical guitar. So, you know, I don't know necessarily what my question to you is, except that you have this huge range. Well, it's a huge range, but it's all, you know, comes from the quest for music that my ears just wanted to hear these things, you know. I mean, by the time I was 15, I had already played all the shadows and all the pop tunes, you know, and then I was sort of moving on. I started to hear American jazz guitarists like Kenny Burrell, Wes Montgomery, and Jimmy Rainey in particular. And, you know, God, those lines are incredible that they're playing. And I started to want to know how those chords were. So we weren't playing one six four five anymore. There are all these altered chords. My ear went to that, and so at that age, I was already getting those influences, you know. And I was just sort of fanatical about guitar. And later, still in my early twenties, you know, I went to university in LA and studied classical guitar for a long time, thinking I was going to be a classical guitarist. But I should have started at three years old if I wanted to do that. It's very difficult. <laughs> But I was very good, and I I did that. And so I got sort of right-hand technique, which before, of course, I'd always play with a pick. So, you know, it's all guitar, a lot of music, classical music, jazz. Of course, I was here in rock, and I was very attracted to Brazilian music. And, you know, when I got into the police and Sting and I started really hooking up, it seemed like we had a parallel journey. He was interested in all the sorts of music I was. He was really into Brazilian music, too. He also had a little nylon string guitar that he liked to play. It was, I mean, it was a one-off, um, like, meant-to-be kind of um, moment, you know, when we got together. We were sort of perfect musical partners, as the world has borne witness to. We were a rock band, so-called, and but we had a um, sort of a stranger or more exotic elements that we were putting into it. And that's another reason why it came out the way it did. I mean, a song like Roxanne, that started as a bossa nova. Stuart changed that by where he placed the kick drum and so that and that forced me into playing that four and bar thing because now it's a world famous song. But it, it came out of these almost like you could call restraints. It's like Sting and I had all these more exotic musics under our fingers, but we were in the sort of constraint of being in a rock band and having to play sort of fast and furious, particularly that time because punk was the thing. And the one weird thing that happened, look, nobody thought we were really a punk band, so we, we, we had a hard time getting shows. So that forced us to rehearse a lot, and once we started to rehearse, all this other stuff started to come out, and Actually, it was very good. It worked that way because it sort of worked back to front. We couldn't get any work, so we worked on our own and started to come up with this style of playing, and eventually, of course, it caught on. So having studied classical guitar, I mean, would you still, even at this age, break out into Concerto de Aaron Juarez? (laughs) That's difficult. I mean, that would take a lot of practice. I'm not playing quite as much classical as I used to. I was fanatical about it for years and studied the whole repertoire. I was completely into it. 
It's more like something I do for myself now. You know, I know all the repertoire. I'm very well versed in it all. And, uh, you know, I like to play a lot of Brazilian stuff. My basic thing is that I, uh, I'm a sort of really a jazz improviser, I think, more than anything. That's, that's where I grew up. It's like the stuff you learn as a teenager is really what stays with you. I'm a fast and fluid player, and that's what I, that's probably the best of my playing. You know, of course, I play all kinds of stuff, as I've demonstrated over 15 solo albums. And, you know, that's what I am. I, play my own style the way I hear it and I think that's my voice my my voice sings and so on and so forth my idea of harmony you know I have a very advanced sophisticated ear because I've been doing this for a long time but still you make a record you think about you know like this is corny what do you want to say what do you want to do this time how are you going to make this something special you know there are a lot of guitarists out there and you have to sound like your own thing because I'm not into playing cliches or anything like that. I try to always come up with very fresh material. I haven't lost interest. I still love playing the guitar. I love being on stage. And, you know, it's a challenge to stay in it. And, of course, the other thing we're all bearing witness to is that the whole game has changed underneath us. You know, I you know, I was thinking last night, well, I'll make another CD in January. I go, mm, why do you want to make another CD? No one buys CDs anymore. You're better off making sort of single tracks maybe and putting them on you know on the internet that's the way it is now but is that a bonus actually i was talking to uh i don't know if you know uh jim cuddy from uh blue rodeo i asked him how he felt about the fact that you know you go through satellite radio and you go one channel up and it's just this tiny bit of an adjustment and it's a different genre of music and a lot of people are not being exposed to new music but what he offered was that he could go online and find some blues artist from 1942 and you know and rock to that well okay yeah i guess you you know you don't have to search through you know your 600 vinyl albums anymore um you know i'm looking at all the rows of cds across the room here that i've got i mean the game has changed Young people now don't buy CDs anymore, even CDs are so. But I, you know, I've come from a whole career of making albums, sorting out 12 songs in a row, in a sequence that contained emotional highs, lows, went this way, curious, interesting, what? All sorts of aspects of music. And you put it together as an album, a CD. And I'm used to, you know, what used to be a vinyl album. So I'm very used to that mindset. And so... We're shifting the sensibility. But, you know, the very basic thing is, is it good music or is it crap? <laughs> it's it's got to be good. It doesn't matter whether you, you know, putting up vinyl, CD, or if it's going to go on, just, you know, as a download. It's got to be good. I find uh, a lot of comfort in making records because it's an expression of who I am, what I've done, that I have artistic taste, and I'm very good. And I want to express that again, you know, whether anybody buys it or not, I don't care. I don't ever think about that. I think I'm feeling something and I want to write it out and I'm going to play it and see if I can make a good recording of it. It's a different mindset. We'll continue our conversation with Andy Summers of The Police in just a moment. Up next, is it true the three band members don't speak to each other? You're listening to John Moore on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Let's get back to our conversation with Andy Summers of The Police. 
I remember this iconic photograph in the Montreal Gazette, because I grew up in Montreal, and you guys were doing a tour, and you were carrying your own instruments. Then years later, I would go to the Olympic Stadium to see you perform. And I just, I kind of wonder what it was like, what the drudgery of touring and trying to score hits on radio and trying to attract an audience. Uh, I mean, it seems like Manifest Destiny that you would become one of the biggest bands of all time. But at that time, yeah, it was, it was like, okay, what's going on? Yeah, we didn't start at the top. We worked our way up and, you know, got there just through brutal hard work and talent and great songs and you know we were a great band and but we still had to prove it just like anybody else did because we started out probably the first time we came to canada you know we were completely unknown and we could get about 30 people to come and see us that obviously changed over time and you know it's a great story because it is a sort of rags to riches story but we we were talented and we were so lucky to meet one another and uh form that chair that did seem to have a rather unique chemistry yeah i'm always curious about the name of the show that you're touring right now is the cracked lens and a missing string so i need to know the story behind that <laughs> well you know i think we all go forward you know like in the career in the life you know with certain disadvantages no one's perfect everything there's always something wrong and you're always overcoming personal obstacles physical obstacles and the world at large is an obstacle and you know going out you know i go okay i'm going to go and do 10 shows mm, what's this going to take it's going to take quite a lot of physicality get on planes get off plane driving for hours at a time being there ready feeling trying to feel good the moment you go on stage hoping it works you've got to play well but i don't feel like it i feel terrible um so I think it's just pointing to the truth about us all in any endeavor. No one feels like incredible and 100%. You do it under usually circumstances that are against you, but you have to prevail. And when I go on stage every night, you know, I could be scared or I could be nervous. I cross my hands are stiff. I have to overcome all these things and go, I'm going to play my ass off tonight. It's going to be great. And get the audience with me. It's a challenge because you walk out onto a big stage and you're basically staring into darkness. Sometimes you can see the audience, sometimes you can't. And then now you have to start in space and start making music. It's difficult. You learn how to do it. And of course, I'm doing it alone on this tour. So I don't, I kind of go, oh, I'll let the bass and drums take it. I'm just going to play one chord and hold on to it. <laughs> There's none of that. You have to uh, be very alive in the moment. Yeah, are you still saying, though, that you are you can be nervous walking out on stage to perform? I'm not really very nervous, no. no, to be honest with you. I'm so used to it. I'm one of those guys, I can come out and start <laughs> to an audience, and they all love it. I'm not really stuck for words. I'm an articulate Englishman, and I can go out there, and this is what they want. And I'll say, well, you know where this song came from? You know, and I start giving them some story or other. And this, you, you know, and I make it up every night. I don't rehearse it. I just start talking. And it usually comes out pretty well. Having just done the amount of shows I've done, I feel, well, I suppose I could have been a stand-up comedian. I'm not sure. But, you know, I'm not afraid of it. In fact, I sort of enjoy it because you start telling a story. I've got a few fairly exotic stories I can lay out that sort of go with the music. And the audience really like it. They appreciate it. And at the end of it, you cap it all off by playing the actual piece of music. 
a friend of mine who spoke with you this week was telling me that uh, you're actually a little bit ticked off at this late date about the fact that you wrote the guitar riff for Every Breath You Take, never got any credit wow. for it, and then it won the Grammy. Well, it's the most played song on American radio in sure. history. So I am the guitarist, the most heard guitar player in the world, actually. If you want to put it that way. I don't want to really get into that conversation. It's a difficult one. Yeah, that's not going to... Okay, but, I mean, how did that even happen? I don't know if you want to talk about it, but how did it happen that you were not credited? Well, it's all been well documented, um, yeah. you know. I was a guitarist in the band, but I wrote the that riff, I did it on the spot. It wasn't there. It was a very, very... In fact, basically, the song was going to... We weren't going to put it on the album. Really? One of your greatest all-time hits? Yeah, I wasn't going to go there. I thought it was too corny. <laughs> but somebody, one of the guitarists in the band transformed it. What does that then tell you about the sort of the chance and the happenstance of what becomes a hit and what doesn't become a hit? I once, I was talking with Jesse Norman, the opera singer, and I said, do you think that the woman who cleaned your hotel room today might be able to sing as well as you? And she said, yes, absolutely. That's a great I, I love to hear that. Yeah, and you must remain humble. Don't take anything for granted. Be humble. Be nice to people. I mean, because I'm telling you, you know, it's very fragile, and it, stuff can get taken away from you. I mean, I mean, I'm sounding a bit mystical now, but I mean, I think it's really true. I try to be a really decent person when I'm going around on tour, and I, you know, I meet all the people backstage who are working hard to put the show on for you, and you turn up at you know somewhere. It, you know, before showtime, like a prima donna. You you have to be very good with people. And I think we always were in the police, and I certainly am on my own. I'm grateful that they're there and they're willing to, you know, we make a little team effort for a few hours together to make it nice, you know, and try, try and, you know, God, how many, we only live one life. Let's, let's get it right. The media loves conflict. So when you guys broke up, the presumption <laughs> was you couldn't stand each other. And yet you played for Sting. Sting played for you. You guys, I yeah. think, still email well, each the other. Media. It's the media. Yeah. Yeah. Now it's all distortion. You know, they distort everything. You've got to be very careful. You know, we see all this crap on TV every day, and I see all this stuff, but it's media distortion. And of course they're going to say that about it, because it it seems to make for more compelling journalism, let's say. They don't don't want to write, oh, they they get on really well together, they're very mellow, which wasn't the case at all. You know, we were sort of a, what's the right word, a band filled with tension. Yeah, I'm going over to see Stuart on Saturday morning. I mean, you know, we're all still in connected. We did a very great thing, which made a lot of people very happy. There's no need to get nasty, ugly, or not get on well. We all made a bloody fortune being in that band. No need to um, have all this stuff. I'm not so there's press like it, but it's not true. You know, it didn't end up with like, oh, I never want to see you ever again in my life. It wasn't like that. It was sort of a slightly sad moment, you know, breaking up. A band as good as that, but um, there you go, you know, you move on. This may be kind of a pointy-headed question for you, but I'll ask it anyway. I've always thought, and especially because it was part of my youth, the second British 
invasion in North America, that there was something magical about that period in British music history. And there seems to be a sweet spot that if you have 70 million people, somehow there is a level of creativity that can feed the domestic audience and then go international. I'm not sure I quite understand the question, but our case, our manager, who is American, insisted that we start trying to break America I mean, we really already had England, you know, we were the number one band in England, there was no question about it. But where we really toured extensively, working hard at it to break the country was the U.S. It took three albums and a lot of touring. And from U.S., of course, this went worldwide. We were the biggest band in the world. And I'm talking about Japan, Australia, you know, everywhere, everywhere you can think of that's sold records and we were it. It wasn't just England. Now, a lot of bands... At around the same time as British bands were doing well, but they never cracked the U.S. They never made it in America, so they remained as a sort of domestic product in the U.K. And so ultimately, yeah, they did okay, but you know, they didn't go on to like the gigantic numbers that we achieved. Uh, a question I often ask the artists I talk to is, was it and is it a good ride? A lot of people their success, you know, the early part of Elton John's career was a blur. Has it been a good ride for you? Oh, it was incredible. I mean, I, I cherish those days. I mean, I don't sit around thinking about, oh, God, I wish I was in the police anymore. I don't. I embrace my own life. I've, I'm my own self, my own musician, my own life. I feel very blessed to have had that time. I wish it could have been longer, but that wasn't what it was. But the band has remained... A, huge selling force oh we've got the most played song of all time and it continues on it doesn't go away you know we're sort of transferring from one media to another as you know time passes us all and we've all you know now live in the internet world but um i have no regrets about anything except yeah, i wish it had gone on a bit longer but there you go thank you sir good to talk with you all right all right john take care Andy Summers is on a solo tour that also features his photography. He plays Toronto on October 5th. In just a moment, what happens when workers decide to no longer be held hostage by their employers? You're listening to John Moore on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. 